Let me tell you a story, podcast number 96. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Steve will start us out with some kid chuckles, and then I'll read from Winds of Wyoming. After that, you'll get to hear from our guest author, Lori Bauer, who just released the third book in her fantasy series, Fairy Wars, The Final Battles. And then Steve will conclude with an excerpt from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. Elisa said, God is telling me to preach because I have sung all over the world. <laughs> and how old was she? <laughs> Four, maybe? <laughs> Sign on the boys' bedroom. No ladies allowed when occupied and non-occupied. Brady, I can't put the Humpty Dumpty puzzle together. It just takes my breath in. <laughs> Brady was standing in the rain instead of getting into the car. We wanted to know why. In an offended voice, he said, I'm taking a shower. And Brady said to me, You're old enough for riding lessons, huh, Dad? <laughs> Brady was messing with the phone and said he got Jesus on the line. We asked what Jesus said. Brady put his hand to his throat and exclaimed, It was scary. He said, Get off that phone. <laughs> okay, here we are at the concluding section of Winds of Wyoming, chapter 29. We'll go a little bit into chapter 30. And maybe we'll get this finished by the time we... We get to podcast number 100. We'll see. Of course, you can drive me to Mexico. Ramsey downed the pills Tara handed him with water she brought from the bathroom on the other side of the room. Yeah, that yellow tank parked outside the door. He set the cup on the tray. But Jer, Tara caressed his shoulder. We can't be partners if you're in Mexico and I'm in Wyoming. Can't be partners if I stay here. They'll find me and throw me in jail. You have to move to Mexico with me. She popped the tops off two beers before handing him one. What if I told you I know a place where nobody will ever find you? I can't stay in this basement forever. He glanced up at the tiny street-level window covered by a short curtain. I've got a much safer location in mind. Oh, yeah? He tipped his head back to sip the beer. Eyelids low, he studied her face. A ranch is a cabin deep in the hills where nobody ever goes. It's old, but in good condition. Trying to turn me into a hermit? I think you'd make a fabulous mountain man. It would be a great disguise. She looked him up and down. Grow a beard. Let your hair get long. Stop using that goop. He frowned. Joking. She batted her eyelashes. But I'm serious about the cabin. You'd be safe there. And what would I do? Rip rabbits apart with my bare hands for food? Of course not. 
She cringed. I take food to you, but you could shoot squirrels and deer and other animals if you wanted. They took it. He swore and slugged the mattress. She jerked away. Who took what? My gun. The sheriff confiscated my gun and my truck. He clutched the bedding. That pistol was brand new. I only got to use it once. Do I dare ask how you used that gun? On a big old buffalo, he stuck out his chest. One shot sent it straight to his knees. Most fun I ever had. She jumped up, hands on her hips. Are you telling me you killed one of Michael's bison? It was a buffalo in Nebraska. He stopped. What's it to you? We're partners now. You're done with Duncan. She tilted her head and gave him a coy smile. I have a plan. I'm sick of you and your harebrained plans. He threw his empty beer can at her. She sidestepped the can. You can listen to my harebrained plan, Jerry Ramsey, or I can walk upstairs, out the front door of my store, and across the street to the police station. Her lips twitched. Might be able to claim a nice bundle of reward money for myself. Chapter 30 Ramsey gritted his teeth. Go ahead, Sharon. Tell me the plan. He would listen, but he'd do things his way the instant his strength returned. We need to get one thing straight, Tara folded her arms, or this partnership will never last. Never said I'd be your partner. She ignored him. My name. Oh, yeah? It's Tara. She spelled it out. T-A-R-A. Can you remember that? He grunted. If I have a mind to. Then you do that. She sat on the end of the bed. About the plan, it's a big one with potential for plenty of cash. Ramsey felt a surge of curiosity. Daddy and I have been working on this for a long time. The pieces are about to fit together. Only a couple glitches. And that's where you come in. He stuck a fingernail between his teeth and began to chew. My grandpa was a really smart banker who knew how to acquire property. Every time a local rancher got into financial trouble, he bought their land at rock-bottom prices so they wouldn't have to foreclose. He's the reason I got interested in real estate. Anyway, after arranging a few deals to make sure all his land was contiguous, he created one of the largest ranches in the region. Ramsey settled into the pillows. This was beginning to sound interesting. Grandpa died years ago, so my father owns the ranch now. She sat tall, eyes bright. Daddy does cattle ranching like most everyone else around here, but he also wants to stock our ranch with exotics. Exotics? Strip dancers on the ranch could bring in plenty of cash, but what did they have to do with cattle? Exotics are animals you don't normally see in America. Wealthy sportsmen will pay big bucks to bag trophy heads for their walls. You mean lions and tigers? No, she shook her head. We'll have animals that can't climb trees or jump the tall fences we plan to build. Gazelles, wildebeests, giraffes, zebras, kangaroos, emus, ostriches, camels, maybe wild boars or javelinas. Those we can acquire from ranchers we know in Texas and Arizona. Tara took a quick breath. Daddy wants a bison herd, but he won't fence our buffalo inside pastures the way Michael does. He'll let them roam free like they do in Yellowstone Park, so hunters feel like they're actually chasing down their prey. They might even get to see a stampede. Beside the exotics, they could shoot the animals that live around here. She used her fingers to list them. 
bears, coyotes, mule deer, elk, moose, antelope, pheasant, grouse, wild turkey. She clapped her hands. I hear wolves have returned to this area. Isn't that exciting? Wolves would really pull in the hunters. Yeah, and never lack for fresh meat. He reached for the whiskey beside the bed. As soon as he got back on his feet, he'd replace the handgun plus buy a rifle. Meaning what? The wolves will eat all those fancy animals of yours, and there won't be anything left to hunt. Tara shrugged her shoulders. Daddy'll have to deal with that. So, back to this plan of yours. First of all, taking the whiskey jug from him, she opened it and poured some in the water cup. I have to marry Michael. What? Ramsay stared at the diamond in her left hand. What does he have to do with this? We need an office where guests can check in and where staff can work. All Daddy and I have right now is a house, a small barn, and a couple sheds, plus a whole lot of land. She handed him the cup. We also need cabins for lodging as well as a dining hall, a big barn, stalls, and corrals. Our ranch is next door to the Whispering Pines, which makes for a perfect merger. We would, of course, change the name. Daddy wants to call it the Sierra Madre Big Game Ranch. Tara's enthusiasm dissolved into a pouting frown. But the Duncans won't sell. Daddy's asked again and again, but they refuse to consider an offer from us. So, she held out her hands, the obvious solution is for me to marry Michael. How can I be your partner if you're married to him? Ramsay took a long swig from the cup. You'll have to hide in the hills until the heat dies down. Eventually, we'll make you ranch manager. She winked. Hmm, he pursed his lips. Jerry Ramsey, ranch foreman. Sounded good, but he was getting sleepy. Before that, you'd have to do your part. What's that? Make sure your Pennsylvania girlfriend is out of the picture. What does she have to do with the plan? Everything. This is from Chapter 1 of The Fairy Wars, The Final Battles, Kalen's Quest. The rope, wet with dew, slips a little in my gloved hands. I choke off a cry. I swallow hard but continue my climb down the side of Mount Halston, wherein lies the beautiful fairy village of Crag Hollow. Its location is a well-kept secret because that's where the fairy king, Aubrey, resides. Recently, however, a dark creature, a raven, infiltrated and then escaped the mountain, threatening Crag Hollow's anonymity. As I descend, my fairy augmented hearing amplifies the creak of my lightweight armor, which was easier to wear than carry. I hear the squeak of my sticky-soled climbing shoes against the rock wall and even detect the rope's brush against the stone. For those who haven't met me, I'm Kaylin Bartholomew Ambrose, an ordinary unmarried clock repairman and an avid fisherman. That is, I was until I accidentally stepped on a fairy prince, the king's son, Enlil. His royal touch gave me special sight to view the world called Fairyland, a world hidden from other humans and chock full of incredible magical powers and strange light and dark creatures called Numinals. Contact with the Fairy Prince bestowed unbelievable gifts upon me, heightened senses, longevity, miraculous healing abilities, and weather control. I'm also nearly impossible to kill. Only someone wielding a silver weapon can do me in, and only if that weapon pierces my heart. Along with these gifts came an unsolicited role, Fairyland's human champion. 
Up to now, my mission has been to rally the light troops and lead them to victory in an age-old war between good and evil. But after my meeting with King Aubrey, I now have a new purpose. I've learned I'm not the first champion, but if I'm successful in this quest that's got me hanging from this mountainside, I might be the last. More about that later. Despite my special abilities, my fear of the cliff in front of me makes my heart thump and my forehead sweat. Before the trickling sweat can reach my eyes, I momentarily let go of the rope with one hand to wipe my brow with the back of my glove. Ah, I groan when my other bicep spasms from a surge of adrenaline. I desperately grab the rope again, but I don't look down. I don't look up either as the rumble of rock scraping rock reverberates across the canyon walls and makes my teeth ache. Above me, the large stone doors to the village must be closing. Yet my focus never wavers from the rock's pitted face, even when those doors slam with an earth-shaking boom, causing the rock to vibrate. My rope quivers, and I can't help but shake. Okay, imagine yourself in my shoes. You've carved out a good life in the middle of the forest. You've got friends, a home-based business, and enough free time to fish and enjoy nature. A quiet existence may be a bit boring, but nicely predictable. And then... All of a sudden, you can see fairies, but not just fairies, ogres and goblins and trolls. Oh, my! Wouldn't you rebel at this new role that's been thrust upon you? Wouldn't you want your life to remain just as it was? Well, that was me at first. But as more and more light creatures became my new friends, and I learned the depth of their oppression at the hands of the Dark Ones, I became invested in helping them win this war, even though, in my heart of hearts, I hate war. Oh yeah, and then there's the creator, Fairyland's deity, who showed me how, throughout history, Fairyland's circumstances have influenced and paralleled the human world. When they're at war, we are too. So, when despots threaten both worlds, the creator provides Fairyland with a human champion. The champion's extraordinary powers and unique perspective can help tip the balance of power to the light side and hopefully bring peace to both humans and numinals. My heartbeat knocks in my ears when my left foot slips on the mist-covered cliff. I grab the rope tighter, regaining my balance. My fingers ache. Don't let me fall, I plead mentally with the creator. To slow my racing pulse, I take deep breaths and lean back to rest my arms for a minute. Then I continue my approach to ground level. I will the still slick rope to slide inch by inch through clenched gloves, knowing that solid ground waits below. What that ground holds, however, is more frightening than this descent. What nightmarish monsters and unknown enemies pace and prowl at the base of this mountain, I wonder, eager for a chunk of my flesh. Together with Krissa, a sorceress and my mentor, and Charles, my werewolf guardian, I've lived in Craig Hollow for the past two weeks. Under those hospitable fairies' care, I've been able to stuff my champion's role into my back pocket and take a mental and physical break. I've rested, eaten well, and exercised every day, gaining bulk and strength. I'm almost back to my robust self. That is, the champion I was before Galdo, an evil magician, imprisoned and starved me for several weeks. Judging from how tired my muscles already are, however, I'm not fully recovered. Now, as I embark upon this journey, the weight of being champion again rests squarely and heavily upon my shoulders. You're probably wondering, if it was so restful inside the mountain, why am I dangling outside it? First of all, King Aubrey received a horrible prophetic vision from the Creator. Even though war has ravaged Fairyland for most of its history, the Dark Side now plans to extinguish all light beings from their world. 
According to the Creator, for the first time in history, the Darklings will succeed if I, yes, little old me, can't stop them. How will they accomplish this genocide, you might ask? By using the lowest of the low in dark creature ranks, goblins. Goblins are the perfect choice because they have a voracious hunger for power and status. Recently, a horde of them attacked gnome and pixie villages and killed infants and children in their beds. I was puzzled and outraged as to why they'd commit such horrible acts, heinous even for them. Then it dawned on me. Those homicidal goblins are turning themselves into boggles, wraith-like alphas in terms of invincibility of the dark side. Formed when a fairy or a goblin who was once a fairy destroys an innocent like a child, boggles are nearly impossible to kill. The only creature who can do so is a wolf or werewolf, who has to be in the right place at the right time. And of course, wolves can't be everywhere at once. Given the goblins' cravings for power, they continue such atrocities, turning themselves into bloodthirsty bogles until Galdo amasses what he believes is an unstoppable army. Then I have little doubt the dark side will annihilate all good folk from fairyland. I shudder to think how that will affect my world. To stop further bogle-making attacks, my fellow escapees from Galdo's prison, a giant, two mermen, two oreads, and a couple of tomtas, plan to recruit others to rout out and attack every goblin the hummingbird scouts can find. The only goblins spared will be those few who've become our light-side allies. I pray my friends are successful. Even if they are, I'm not sure that'll change the war's outcome, because the Creator didn't offer any other scenarios except future genocide. A shadow passes over the morning sun, and I crane my neck to look up, worried about my visibility and vulnerability. I'm easy pickings for boggles. I breathe easier when I see that the dimming stems from an actual cloud, but still accelerate my descent. So, you ask, why am I the only one who can stop this long-standing war? According to King Aubrey, the first fairyland monarch established an insurance policy centuries ago against the dark side ever attaining such absolute power. He hid four balance stones, two black and two white, somewhere in the realm. The king has asked me to find these pebbles. My sentient swords, noblesse, and her male counterpart, noblige, have sockets in their hilts for these stones. Like every other champion before me, my stones were manufactured by ground gnomes, fairyland's metalworkers, and imbued with magic. They were also fashioned with stone-sized recesses, just in case. Because it's morning, I know without looking that right below this balanced stone depression, Noblesse's yellowish sun is a light on one side of her hilt. The accompanying pearlescent dancing fairies and colorful open flowers are also active, but at night the sun darkens and the bluish moon on her other side brightens. Then the fairies go to sleep, as do the flowers. Although not as ornate, Norbleege's hilt has magically engraved vines and leaves that sway without any breeze. Somehow the stone's placement into my weapons will neutralize the dark side. At least that's what the king believes. I have my doubts. In my months of fighting for fairyland, I've learned things are not always what they seem. Another shadow passes over the cliff face, and I feel a rush of air as something swoops past my head, leaving a chalky smell behind. On a second pass, the flying menace pierces my scalp with what feels like a series of hypodermic needles and hangs on. Youch! I yell. I jerk my gloved hand from the rope, reach toward my head, and grasp at whatever has latched onto me. When I feel a solid mass under my glove, I squeeze tight and then yank, which causes a flurry of falling feathers and a squawk, but which also releases what must be a bird's grip. 
I pull my captive toward my face to discover that my attacker is a large black raven. My shock at its presence overcomes the throbbing pain in my scalp. Uh-oh, I can't let this bird, a servant of Natos, the main source of evil in Fairyland, report back to his master. He'd send all kinds of nasties after me. The bird squawks and squirms some more. Then it bends its neck down to peck my wrist, hoping I'll let go. I don't loosen my grasp. Finally, it turns toward my face. Worried it'll go for my eyes, I slam it against the cliff face as hard as I can. Its body goes limp, and I open my hand to drop its carcass to the ground below. I grab the rope again with my other hand and rest a moment. I wish I hadn't had to kill such a beautiful animal, but I've learned that the evil beings at Fairyland have no mercy and no remorse. It was him or me. Thanks to my supernatural healing ability, the pain from my wounds is already subsiding, so my thoughts now wander back to the balance stones. I ask myself why I'm skeptical about finding and using them. First of all, in the entire span of time, no one has ever attempted this quest because Fairyland's good folk haven't needed the stones before now. After hundreds of years, who knows if they're where the first king left them? Do they even still exist? Will I recognize them if I find them? And if they do exist, and I can find and recognize them, no one has yet proven how they'll usher in peace and goodness as the king proposes. Is the magic in them still active? Will I know how to use it when the time comes? So many questions, and not a single answer. In my darkest moments, I see this as a fool's errand. But the optimist in me says, if there's the slightest chance to save the benevolent numinals of this land and avoid more bloodshed, I have to honor the king's request to find the stones. After I agreed to the king's mission, I immediately regretted my decision. King Aubrey claims he's pointed me in the right direction, but I don't know my final destination or what awaits me when I get there. I also don't know what I'll find along the way, all of which makes me nervous. The king assures me that the creator and my swords will guide me, so I'm trying to rest in that. The final shovelful of dirt on my grave is that I must complete this quest alone. No Chrissa with her great range of magic, no Rampart slash Charles, my werewolf companion, and no Grog, my bugbear bodyguard. According to the king, deadly traps exist along the route to the stones that can kill anyone but me. I'm not sure why the creator didn't include Chrissa, who's immortal in this mission, but he must have a good reason. Although silver is probably not part of those metal-testing traps, the traps themselves could incapacitate me or slow me down. And if the traps aren't enough, the king tells me that the dark sight keeps a perpetual eye on me. They're aware of my quest and will likely send whole squads of assassins with silver knives and swords after me. And if they're boggles, I can't kill them. You can see why my powers and near invincibility don't lessen my dread of what lies ahead. I see only two conclusions to this quest, tragedy or triumph. Not only is my destination unsure, but my own human frailty stand in my way. I fear spiders, high cliffs, very dark places, and evil spirits like Bogles. Some champion, huh? If I didn't know the creator was behind all this, I'd assume a terrible error has been made. And that's what trumps my fears, divine power. If this ordinary clock repairman were all on his own, he'd run and hide. But I'm not alone. Before I decided to embark on this quest, I asked the creator for advice. He replied, I'm with you. That was all I needed to hear because he has more power than Chrissa, Natos, and all the good and evil magicians who have ever lived put together. Now the sun warms my back, and with my fairy-enhanced nose, I breathe in the clean mountain air with its hint of wild mint. I'm grateful the new morning hasn't yet awakened the sleeping wind, and that the rope and I aren't buffeted by gusts. After what seems like hours, but is probably much less, the rock in front of me becomes more jagged.
I scrambled down and over a scree pile while still holding the rope. I'm grateful when my right foot touches something solid and stable. I look down to see that I'm standing on a wide layer of shale. I've reached the bottom. I sigh with relief. At least I don't have to hang from a rope anymore for a while. I release the rope and stretch my cramping hands. I'll leave the rope in place in case I return this way. With the doors to Craig Hollow closed and ferry patrols scouring the area, I can leave it in plain sight. I look around and am pleased that I'm alone and have made it to the canyon floor without being attacked by a griffin or a dragon. Maybe the dark side doesn't yet know I've left the mountain. I know, I know, wishful thinking, but a guy can dream, can't he? I turn to view the moraine, a mass of dirt and rock formed by retreating glaciers eons ago. It stretches for miles, a fact I noted when the doors to Crag Hollow were still open and before I began my downward climb. Looking across the valley from high up didn't bother me like peering over the cliff's edge. Weird, huh? Kremnophobia, a fear of precipices, is what my physician, Doc Smithson, calls it. While I was still perched on the ledge at the entrance to Crag Hollow, I viewed Fairyland's northernmost edge. A serrated mountain range called Dragon's Teeth lies there. That's where the king instructed me to go. From 20 miles away, I could see its tallest peak, the Fang. This mountain juts up through the clouds and is high enough to generate its own weather. But that doesn't concern me. I can change its weather to suit me. The Dragon's Teeth Mountains span many miles, and the king doesn't know exactly where the stones are hidden. All he's given me to go on is a centuries-old riddle passed from generation to generation of fairy royalty. When the dragon's mouth opens, its dagger is sharp. Sharp pretty much describes every peak in that range. I have to trust my swords and the creator's guidance that I'll not wander around up there for months, searching every crack and cranny for four tiny pebbles. Now, however, I can't see the moraine's end because slinky tendrils of fog swirl and creep in my direction. I decide not to invoke my weather powers to clear the air because I'm already too vulnerable to aerial attack on this wide plateau. The misty shroud envelops me and I'm grateful for its safety, coolness, and musky smell. I remove my climbing gloves and lift the huge backpack off my shoulders to root around in it, shifting items until I can pull out my helmet and hiking boots. In this pervasive fog, the helmet will signal any threat. It's my third helmet. Galdil stole the first and the second is back at Chris's compound. This head covering, ordered together with a new suit of armor after I agreed to this quest, was also constructed by the ground gnomes during my two weeks of R&R, and then magicked by Krissa. That means she's given me a panoramic view. Without turning my head, I can view red flashing outlines around potential attackers, front, rear, sideways, and overhead. I'll be aware of an enemy before he sees me in the fog. My headgear, like my suit of armor, fits me like a second skin and is light and airy as gauze, but with the strength of steel. Thank you, gnomes. I change to hiking boots, stow my climbing shoes and gloves, don my helmet, and close the pack. Hoisting it over one shoulder, I'm relieved it's much lighter now without the boots and helmet. In the two weeks I've lived at Craig Hollow, Krissa helped me decide what to take on this journey. I've packed a change of clothes, sleeping and climbing gear, all-purpose rope, and enough food for at least a week. She also gave me a crash course, hopefully no pun intended, in rock climbing. I'm not close to her level of expertise, but as evidenced by my still being alive, I can get up or down the mountain if I have to. Why, you ask, would a sorceress climb like a regular human when she has magic at her disposal? Using strong magic weakens Krissa, and teleportation takes a portion of her magical reserves. 
To preserve her strength for fighting evil, she prefers to travel conventionally whenever possible. I thread my way over the shale, my armor rustling, my swords in their sheaths gently slapping against my sides. I've crisscrossed their straps over my shoulders to keep them out of my way. The pommels rest with an easy reach, slightly above my hips. Two pouches of dust, one fairy, one pixie, lie secure against my chest beneath the chainmail. Both are recent gifts from the king. As I walk forward, my super hearing detects the flutter of many wings, but they're not the distinctive swoosh of dragon's wings. What's following me, I wonder? Griffin? Raven? Or something else? I look up, but the fog encases me. My helmet doesn't flash red, so what's up there either isn't a threat, or else the creatures are so high up I needn't worry about them right now. Alert to any further sounds overhead, I whisper the words, ready to fight, which releases Noblesse's grip on her sheath, and I pull her out. The flapping noises continue as I move along the shale ledge. I have to peer down to watch my footing, but I also have to raise my eyes from time to time to see if my helmet signals a threat above. It's slow going. I trudge on like this for some time, the crunch of shale below, the flap of wings above. Finally, I can stand it no longer. I point my sword skyward, and using my supernatural weather ability, will the fog to clear over my head. Like always, I end my request with, by the power of the Creator. I grasp noblesse with both hands and prepare for an attack. When the fog parts, I see blue sky, but I also see a mass of gray shadows between the heavens at me. Chapter 2 The shadows split into hundreds of pieces, and the morning sun backlights a bevy of lustrous wings. I smile at the fairy squadron floating overhead. One swoops down to hover at eye level. Here's a little bit from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. What's new in the prison? One of my clerks was sent back to the prison he had come from. He was the clerk who read romances and liked to try new Arthurs, which really is authors. I was able to find him many lists of the type he liked. He hated to leave because he worried he wouldn't get enough of the books he likes, and he was branching out to other types of books with my reader's advisory help. In fact, he read a book and recommended it to me called Bad Girl. It was gory, but good. He was very needy, but very nice guy. He was in his 30s and had been down for a long time, like 18 years. His people, another prison term, would send him money and books, etc. Then he sent home money to his niece because her parents had been killed. Recently, she had a baby out of wedlock, so he intended to support that one too. He has a strong family support system. He was not a criminally minded person. He wasn't a liar or a thief, but he had an anger problem that he had never been able to get a handle on. Said he thought maybe he had done too many drugs and that was the cause of it. Before he left, he wanted a notebook like I give the contest winners because it was college-lined and they can't buy them on canteen. I told him I could not give him one, so one of the other clerks who had won one gave him his. Tell me these are horrible people. This same guy had bought two bags of coffee off canteen to help me since I buy all the coffee for the clerks and myself. No one else has ever done that. He also did the work of two or three people and has been hard to replace. I had an exit interview with him to tell him what a good job he had done for me and not to take things so seriously when he made mistakes. 
He used to really get upset with himself if he did anything wrong. I told him, it's okay, this isn't brain surgery. My old boss used to say that. It's checking in and out library books. And if you believe that, you are not a librarian. And we all make mistakes. I had to convince him to look on the bright side of leaving as they told him he was going there to do a heavy equipment class. I told him that he needed that for when he gets out in a couple of years, as library jobs are hard to come by. He had told his cellie about my fear of the mean-looking guy in the maximum prison, the one they had shown pictures of and told us about when we were in basic training. So it turns out the cellie had been friends with this guy before he ever got in trouble. They had lived together in another state, so he brought down some pictures of the two of them when they were young. The scary inmate was a very good-looking guy back then. Huge even then, the cellie said he thought he was crazy because he could lift weights like no one else could. They have to put leg irons on his wrists because he is so big. Steroids? I have gotten to the point where I ask myself, what game is this inmate playing? I don't treat them any different but I call some of them on it. I also mentioned that I am friends with different officers and case managers, and that helps. One game is to try to get you by yourself, feeling that you have no support from other staff. I have a cute little Hispanic clerk who is getting out very soon, so his latest game is, I just don't know what I'm going to do when I get out. I guess this is a common ploy. I tell him, you'll do fine. You have your family's support, and you're a mama's boy, and she will be there for you. I give him so much crap all the time about being spoiled rotten. Since he is a little gangbanger, part of the group of this other older one who thinks he's running the prison, I had to ask myself from the time that I hired him, just what does the older guy have him doing? And I still think there is a game trying to be played. I had to tell him twice the other day to pull up his pants. This is called sagging or bagging and is supposedly a gang sign. Now the older guy, who, by the way, slit his girlfriend's throat and threw her in a dumpster, just came down to the library today for the first time that I know of. Maybe the other guy told him I wasn't falling for the poor little me thing, and he's going to try his own game. I'm not sure, but he asked me some questions about using the library. The guys that work for me are like a little family. One guy who was in his 30s left home in Christian school to do a 180 and get very involved with drugs when his stepfather kicked him out. Then there's a guy who is in his 40s who was a computer tech and taught at the college until meth got a hold of him. He lost everything, jobs, family, and all. They almost all get along very well, and I have to remind them that horseplay is not allowed. Better that than fighting, though. There is another guy who has been volunteering lately for us. He's in his 20s as well and has been in prison for some time. His story was that he stole $500,000 from his grandparents because he blamed them for his sister and brother killing themselves. I went up and read his file since he had this bizarre story. The only thing I could confirm is that his stepfather molested his sister and she killed herself. If his brother killed himself, it isn't in his file. And apparently, he actually stole about $50,000 from various people by making checks on a computer. He is very smart, and I hope he will behave himself and stay out of trouble now that he was paroled. But the fact that he is a storyteller doesn't bode well for him. We had parole board hearings the last couple days by satellite. 
One guy that I know got paroled, but the others didn't. So one of my clerics is very down, even though he didn't expect to be paroled. One young guy whose MRD, mandatory release date, is in a few months, knew he probably wouldn't get out any earlier. So asked the lady on the TV, Can you see me? She said, Yes. He said, I know you're not going to let me go early, but there is good news. She said, What? He said, I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance through GEICO. (laughs) She laughed. At least she had a sense of humor. I'm always amazed that the inmates can laugh at anything. And with that, we'll release you from this podcast. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.